Welcome to Mind Rewind, a voyage through mental health journeys by those with the courage and desire to share their experiences with you. Through the insight and lived experience of others, you may find the tools and strategies that could benefit you and the strength to reach out for support. Listen and you'll hear messages of hope and that there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome when there is a willingness and bravery to tackle your challenges. Just a warning that some of the content of this story may be confronting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, speak with someone today. Please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mind Rewind. I'm Jack Payne, and today I'm lucky enough to be sharing a story with Maggie, who's joining us from another state. So we're online together and I'm meeting Maggie for the first time, which is lovely. Maggie, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're at right now. Hi, Jack, and hi, everyone. Thanks for letting me come on the podcast. So I'm currently 22. I'm a counsellor with a Bachelor of Counselling, and I've recently started my own private practice on the Sunshine Coast called First Step Counselling and Wellbeing. And I'm seeing like all sorts of clients. I really am passionate about people with cancer experiences and people with disabilities, but I see a whole range of people. So yeah, that's pretty much what I'm up to now. And yeah. That's amazing to be your young years and have done your qualifications and already have established a private practice. So well done. That's a fantastic achievement. I'm curious to know because I've had a couple of therapists who've joined me on the podcast with their stories and I always find it fascinating that people who've had some, you know, big challenges, big hurdles through their adolescent years end up in the field. There's a Mm. certain irony to that, the wounded healers, but I'm curious to know what your path might have been to get you to where you are today. I actually started off wanting to do occupational therapy and then it wasn't quite what I expected and then I had to search a little bit and then I found counselling and I swapped degrees in the first year and it was the best move I ever made. What so, what, what did you think OT was going to be? <laughs> I just found exams really hard because, like, obviously you'll hear when I talk about my story more, but, like, I have short-term memory loss and things like that and just going to university, it was quite difficult for me and counselling just suited me better and I didn't realise it because I didn't even understand the difference between counsellors and psychologists so I just thought counselling was psychology and I knew I didn't want to do psychology so when I actually looked into it I was like oh maybe this. Okay that's a really good point because that you know there is often a lot of confusion between psychiatry, psychology Mm. and psychotherapy and counselling so they are all very different and I think we're lucky that we've got them all because actually you know it's different strokes of different folks and some people fit other models better than you know than others so it's it's lovely that we've got them all there but you chose that counselling route. Interesting you said exams were difficult for you Did you not have exams in the counselling? The only ones I had were the ones I already completed in OT. Okay. And so that's why I actually chose it because it was all practical. Like in the counselling degree, you learn stuff every single week and you put that into practice. So you practice with people every single week. And then at the end of semester, you go into a recording studio and you record yourself counselling with a real person. And it's like that practical thing, which I can do. And Ah. you're not sitting in a room 
blank with a piece of paper in front of you. And I just found that so much easier. Okay, fantastic. So it was such a good fit for you. Mm. I'm the polar opposite. I quite like the exams and I was terrified <laughs> of sitting in this, being in the, the therapy room being filmed. Interesting you say that, that memory loss or, or, you know, not being able to draw on long-term memory is a challenge for mm. you. Does that sit within your mental health challenges? Is there a, is there a causation for that or? Yeah. So I guess I'll explain my situation. Mm. So I experienced a decline in my mental health when I was in high school because I actually had brain cancer when I was 11 years old. So once I was in high school and during my teenage years, I suffered from depression as I didn't have any support and I still deal with the side effects and the ongoing effects of treatment every single day of my life, even now. And at that time, I was still trying to adjust to that like new life and dealing with like survivor's guilt and scanxiety and things like that that a lot of people don't realise you still face every day after you've had cancer. 11 years old you were diagnosed. Yeah. Would it be prying for me to ask what that was like and what you had to go through in terms of treatment? Yeah, it was pretty tough. Like especially seeing my mum, like I remember the day I was diagnosed and they told me and I was like, oh, okay, well, I have to go to hospital, which I'd never been to hospital, so I was a little bit excited. (laughs) But my mum was just bawling in the room and I was like, oh, no. Like, (laughs) And I had three brain surgeries to start off with to try and take out the tumour, but because of how big it was, it was the size of a large orange. Oh, my goodness. because of the size of it and where it was in my brain, they couldn't get it all. So then... I was put on a clinical trial and I had two rounds of intense chemotherapy and I lost my hair and that was the biggest thing for me when I was 11. Like I didn't want to lose my hair. And so I had two rounds of chemotherapy, which were really intense. Like it was over less than two months I had all the chemotherapy where people will usually have it over a long-term period where I didn't. And then they did two more surgeries on my brain to try and take it out again. The fourth one didn't go so well and there was a lot of bleeding and stuff, so they had to hold that. And then they went in for the final time and they actually got it all out. Well, so they thought. So then for the clinical trial, I had to then do 35 rounds of radiation therapy on my brain. So, yeah. This is all happening at age 11? Yeah. So you're in year five, year six at school? Yeah, year six. Okay, so, you know, normally we're excited. It's the last year of primary school. There's a lot of celebration that goes with that. We've got the anticipation, nervousness of going to high school, you know, everything that early adolescence Mm. has got around it and you're dealing with brain cancer. Yeah, it was pretty tough. Did you spend, you know, of course you spent a lot of time in hospital, but, you know, of that year, how much time did you spend in hospital? months like the first stint I did in hospital we were there for five weeks but no break and then you know we got to go home for like a week or two then I went back to start chemotherapy it was in and out from there like I'd go in for a few weeks once I had surgery because it'd go through like ICU the high dependency ward and then back into the normal ward like all that process Mm. and then when I was having radiation I didn't have to stay in the hospital there was like a little lodge that was funded by the hospital or a different foundation that 
me and mum got to go to while I was having radiation. Because I live on the Sunshine Coast, we had to drive to Brisbane for that, which is, it was like an hour and a half, two hours away. So we stayed there during my radiation. Every day we'd go into the hospital and I'd have radiation. And on weekends we got to go home. But, yeah, so quite a few months of in and out. In and out of hospital. Tell me about the fear. I imagine as an 11-year-old who sees mum break down. I mean, as you said, Mm. you know, initially for you it was, oh, gone hospital, never been before. This is a bit of an adventure. But (laughs) then then the the reality of seeing mum emotional I imagine was quite scary. If she's crying, yeah. this must be a big deal. Mm. What was going on for you apart from obviously the physical stuff that you had to go through? I remember the first thing that popped up in my mind was, am I going to die? Because about 18 months beforehand, one of the girls I went to school with, we were in year four, she passed away from a brain tumour. Oh my an inoperable brain tumour. So my whole school went through that process with her. and of losing her. Yeah, and it went over like a year, you know. So that's what I thought in my head, like, am I going to end up like her? Am I going to die? But when I finally met my oncologist and I asked him, he actually Did you ask him out, that question? Yeah, because it turns out that he was my friend's oncologist as well. And I said, oh, it's crazy. And I said, am I, like, going to end up like her? Am I going to die? And he he explained it really well for me. He told me the difference of the tumours and hers wasn't cancerous, but it was just the spot it was. And he said, you know, there's ways we can go about it, we can operate and you can have treatments. And he said, you're not, you know, you're not going to die. So, yeah, that was really good. And he was so good. He just... He works well with kids and he just gets on their level and he explains it in their terms because they don't, kids don't know all the terminology. And they don't need to, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So he was just able to explain that to me. So I knew what was happening. Like he would also teach me things about things that would be going on in treatment, which was good. Oh, what a special man. Yeah. So you were really lucky to to have him. Did you start high school? In Year 7? In Queensland, it's actually, well, not anymore, but when I was in high school, it was Year 8 we started. Ah. So Year 7 was the last year of primary school. Okay. So it's changed now, but that's what it was like back then. So, yeah, I started high school in Year 8, which was two years after, nearly two years. Where was your mental health then? Because I'm thinking you've lost your hair at that point, so you're growing it back. Mm. You've, you know, stared death in the eye, let's Mm. call it that. You know, even though you were be given beautiful messages by your oncologist, I think, you know, there was that underlying fear, what if things go wrong? I've had the experience, lived experience of losing a friend in year four. Mm. What was it like for you to move into high school, which has its own challenges for every mm. adolescent, let alone what you were sitting with in the background? I was pretty nervous, but luckily the primary school I was at, it's like the secondary school is like sort of linked. Like a feeder? It's not the same school. Yeah. yeah. So pretty much everyone in my grade went to that high school. So it wasn't such a big transition, okay. like some other people going to a brand new school. But my mental health wasn't too bad when I started high school. So yeah, that was good. I still had friends and everything, but it was once high school really started, like middle of year eight, going to year nine and 10, it went downhill pretty quick. Like 
a lot of my friends just couldn't understand the problems that I have, like, and they just kind of just stopped talking to me because when you get cancer, all these people come around you. There's lots of attention. They want to support you and everything like that. And then when you finish treatment, they're like, oh, you can go back to normal. And it's like, well, what's normal? Well, exactly <laughs> right. Normal. There is no normal. Mm. So, so that's an interesting interesting point that you say, you know, that year eight, year nine, year 10, which I'd argue is often where we see the emergence of, you know, mental health issues in young people, often much earlier, but generally in the adolescent population, it's, it's in that time frame. You've had something enormous to deal with. Did that play a part in your mental health? decline or do you think it was completely separate I think there was a bit of both because I was dealing with you know still trying to figure out what my life looks like now because it was just so different Mm. like I have chronic fatigue I have an acquired brain injury now where my short-term memory isn't very good just heaps of things like that that I wasn't used to when I was trying to adjust Um, my mum and dad separated during my treatment So I was also dealing with that. And then my friends were quite sort of nasty. Like they would leave me out and they'd all have sleepovers, but I would be the only one not invited. And so having that as well and having no support from friends, like that really, you know, took a toll on my mental health a lot. I always think that's the perfect storm with adolescence is when the family is kind of unraveling in the background, but mm. then then I feel excluded, rejected by friendship groups. Mm. I think that often is the reason people plummet yeah. because connection is so very important to young people. It's important to all of us, but it's incredibly important to young people in, in, in their development. So what happened when you experienced this exclusion by, you know, so-called friends and are you still friends with them today or did you move into different friendship groups? I kind of separated from them and just relied on my family a lot and myself because a lot of the people, they would always message me and I'd basically be their free counsellor. But then when I needed support, they weren't there. And I was just getting so sick and tired of being that person, especially when no one actually cared about me. So I distanced myself from them a lot and really relied on like my brothers and my mom and grandparents and things like that. But yeah, it, it was pretty hard in high school. Were those friends that let you down? I mean, they, they'd use you for your kind of listening ear, but we're not there for you. Were they supportive when you were going through the cancer treatment? Yeah. So when I've got the obvious illness slash injury, we're there and we're supportive, but when we move Mm. into that terrain of something I can't see, not so supportive. Yeah. Were they aware that you were struggling? Well, I believe so. Like I would try and tell them the things that I was going through and at the same time, like I, at the start of, you know, my remission stage, I was having checkups like monthly and then it went to like three monthly. So I was always going back and forward to Mm -hmm. the hospital for heaps of different appointments. So I was missing out on school for that. And, you know, I tried to explain them things about like my short-term memory loss and my fatigue and they just, yeah, they just couldn't understand it all. So, And I'm certainly not defending them here, but I'm wondering if the not being able to understand it 
made it hard and confusing for you and that their instinct was to retreat or withdraw from it because it's all too complicated and I don't get it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like I don't expect them to understand, but like just having someone to talk to for me just would have made such a big difference and being like, hey, I don't understand what you're going through, but I'm here if you need to talk. Like that's all someone needs to do, like even if they don't understand the situation, you know. I, t- I totally agree. I don't think anybody mm. is ever really looking for someone to fix whatever they're feeling, but they definitely want to be validated or just have someone sit with them in it. And God's mm. okay, I'm here. And you you had that, I imagine, whilst you were going through the treatment and then suddenly it wasn't there anymore. And arguably you were just as ill, but just in a very mm. different way. Tell me more about the uh, – and obviously I'm, I'm presuming that the brain injury and the chronic fatigue come from the – the cancer and the treatment? Yeah, just the mainly the brain surgery. Okay. And what what does that look like for you and, and what how does it affect you on a day-to-day basis? So like in the mornings mm-hmm. I'm great. And then about two or three o'clock I start to decline and I get really fatigued. Sometimes I need to nap and I just need to slow down with what I'm doing, especially if I've been busy. Like a few months ago I was doing support work. And I loved it, but then halfway through I'd start to get super tired, especially if someone was really energetic and they always were on the go. I was like, hang on, I can't keep up. Yeah, you poor thing. (laughs) Yeah. So having my own business now, it's great because I can try and plan my day to make it better for me. So I'm putting out my best self for other people as well. But, yeah, sometimes I just won't be able to do things. Yeah. And that was through your teens as well? Yeah. Ever since I had the surgery, had the and, surgery. Like that. and what about the um, the memory impaired memory? So, how does that affect you, and how do you overcome it? Because I imagine that's a big one. It's so frustrating. Yeah, it's so so frustrating. Are you a girl that lives on lists? Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I have everything organized. Like my mum always goes, "You are so organized," and I'm like, "I have, I have to, be. to be." I have to be organized, like. All through uni, I was so organized and my partner and my mum were like, how do you do that? And I'm like, I don't know, it just comes naturally because that's what I have to do. That's incredible. Yeah. So, but it just comes up randomly. Like sometimes I'll be talking and I completely forget what I'm even talking about. And people have to remind me all the time about things. I often forget like medication that I have to take. So my partner always reminds me to take my medication and just heaps of different stuff like that. And like for exams, I just would go in there and I wouldn't remember a thing. Now I understand why a paper Mm. exam is just not going to work for you. (laughs) Yeah. But practical stuff is way better. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think that is? What's the, you know, there's obviously a very plausible explanation. I'm not (laughs) going to pretend I know what it is, but what what do you think that is, that you can do the practical stuff? I think it's just a different part of your brain working and it's just you're doing it. It's just easier for me. I don't know exactly why, but it just, yeah. It just works. In counselling, like I said, you learn something and then, during like the workshop lessons, you practice it. So you sit down with a partner and then you go through it. And then, you know, that's going to help your memory where 
in the other classes, they would tell you something and you write it down and then you go into an exam. There was no actual practice for it. So, uh, so it's the doing that reinforces mm. it for you rather than just recalling information. Yeah. Okay. And I think that is like some people's way of learning as well. Oh, like great. everyone has different ways of learning. Mm. So I think that was my type of learning and then also dealing with the memory problems. Like <laughs> Exactly, combination of the two. See, obviously the – this led to, you know, um, a period of your life where you, you said you had depression. Mm. Can we talk a bit, little about that, what that looked like for you? How long yeah. it lasted? What were the signs that, you know, it, you were starting to fall down that pit? Yeah, it was probably like in year nine, so I would have been 14. And it was just when the stuff with my friends were getting really bad, so I started to distance myself from them. So I didn't have anyone other than my family to talk to. I was just, I felt so alone and felt like nothing, like there was nothing at the end, you know. I also had my school tell me I couldn't do certain subjects because I wasn't smart enough. And these subjects what? I needed to do to get into uni. And when I had like the meeting to talk about subjects for year 11 and 12, they said, no, you can't do them. And I wanted to do this program, which my uni offer, which is called the Head Start Program. Tell and me about that. And you get to do a course in year 11 and a course in year 12 of uni. And I really oh, wanted to do that. To like knock some of your units out before you even get yep. there. Yeah. And that was my goal. That's what I wanted to do. And when I mentioned that, they're like, no, the university won't accept you you're not going to pass university. And I'm so grateful that I had such a good mum because she was like, no, you're not defining my daughter by her disability. And she took me out of that school. We changed schools. They let me do the courses I need to do and I completed university. So, wow. Okay, that's, like, the, that's all the proof we need, isn't it? Isn't that like, amazing that a, that a school would be guess so so harsh in saying no you can't mm. you're not a fit to do this without even allowing you to attempt it mm, to have a go yeah like why not give someone the opportunity to have a go and if they fail well it doesn't matter at least they try as if you hadn't had enough people kind of sending you a negative message about not being good enough and whether that was you know the the friends isolating you out or Mm. whatever it might be, then you've got school telling you that you're not good enough academically yeah, and then you went and, on to prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't only just dealing with, like, the loneliness. I was having people tell me that I couldn't do stuff. And at that time as well, I started to get headaches regularly again, which was, like, before my diagnosis and we couldn't figure out what it was. Like, the tumour hadn't come back or anything, but I was – missing so much school in grade nine and 10 because of these headaches. So I was at home because I couldn't go to school. I was alone. I was dealing with all this. How did you deal with it? You know, the obvious depression. And, you know, I know for people listening that sometimes depression is, it's very obvious in where it might be rooted that we know that people have had a really complex set of circumstances, whatever, there's just overwhelmed too much to deal with. And for some people, there isn't an obvious cause, you know, that they just don't feel great. Obviously for you there was a cluster. How was it treated or how did you manage it? 
or did someone diagnose you or was it just something you realised that was happening and you pulled yourself out of it? What, what was the story around it? So my mum took me to see like a psychologist and it took me a while to find the right therapist. Tell me. me about that. That's really important. That's come up in other podcasts I've done and I think it's a really important yeah. thing for young people to hear is we sometimes you don't hit it in the first yeah. meeting and it's not that's not going to be the fit for you. Mm. So tell me how what your process was like. Yeah, it's quite discouraging when you, you go out of your way to see a therapist and then you're like, mm, I don't really like this person or they just say the wrong things um, and you wonder like, oh, is it worth it? And then you contemplate whether or not you should keep trying. And, yeah, so I had the first therapist, didn't really like them. I had a second one, didn't like them. And, like, I really thought it just wasn't for me. And then I had a bit of a break for a while and then I finally found one that I liked. And, yeah, it was good once I found the right one for me. What what made it the right person for you? They were person-centred. They were actually listening to me and they understood a little bit about what I was talking about because not everyone, you know, like the friends at school, understand what you've been through and any of the stuff. So sometimes going to different therapists, I'd have to explain what everything meant because they didn't know. Mm. This person kind of knew because I think they were a nurse okay. previously, so they had a bit of understanding. Medical knowledge. Yeah, and they were just person-centred. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is person-centred and being empathetic. Like You just needed to be things. heard and be validated and have someone sit with you in your story. Yeah. How long, roughly, did it did it take you to feel like you came out the other side from the low mood? I think it was from the combination of seeing a therapist and then also changing up the environment. So we found out what was causing the headaches. So ah. it was actually my body wasn't going into REM sleep, which is the main part of sleep. And it was because my brain doesn't make enough melatonin. <laughs> so they gave me melatonin tablets and I still take them. Yep. And I go into REM sleep and I get the sleep. And I you need. don't get the headaches anymore. No. Was there a fear? And, I, I, you know, I'm putting myself in your shoes here and I'm thinking, bloody hell, if I'd been through brain cancer and I was suddenly getting headaches again years later, mm. I'd be pretty scared. Yeah, we were so worried. Like we had so many tests done because we thought there'd be something or maybe it's gone to a different spot or things like that. So it was a relief when we found out it's, you know, as simple as taking some medication. and Something as natural and, and, and non-addictive. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. So I got rid of like the daily headaches and I moved schools at that time. They allowed me to do the subjects I wanted so I could see the path again of where I wanted to go. And, yeah, it just all started like I could see the light at the end of the tunnel again. So for you, in many ways, your your path out of depression was really to be able to reinstate the goals, to be able to go, mm. I, I want that thing up ahead. 
Because I think what yep. often happens when people get really low is actually they can't see beyond this afternoon, let alone tomorrow or next week and whatever. But but actually having structure and routine and moving forward towards a goal, I think is is actually really important to get people to dig themselves out. And you know, even if that goal is as simple as getting up and having a shower and brushing your teeth in the first instance. Mm. But for you, there was this reinstatement of something that was really important, but also a shift of environment, which I also think is really important when we're in an environment that's not a good fit. How did the friendship situation alter when you went into those last couple of years of school in the new environment? Yeah, it was actually quite good. Like I stopped talking to all my friends pretty much from my old high school. And when I went into the new one, it was a super small school. So there was only like 20 of us in my whole grade. So I didn't have like super close friends, but I made good friends. And yeah, that was really good. Something I really needed. What about now? What does your friendship circle look like now? Did you, because a lot of young people, it's a story I hear pretty frequently, really struggle to find their tribe in school and you know we know friendships are so incredibly important for young people in their development and yet when they're in that environment and can't find their tribe they actually feel like a failure they feel like there's something wrong with them Mm. have you found your tribe and where did you find them not really not yet okay still looking I'm still trying to as like a young person in their 20s I hear it so much Mm -hmm. like it's so hard to make friends especially on the Sunshine Coast, like I'm in a Sunshine Coast Small girls environment. group on Facebook. Okay, good. And everyone talks about how they can't make friends, but people put like friend applications on there and you can try and make friends with people and then they have like, you know, days where you can go meet people and go to the okay. beach together and, yeah, it's really good. So, yeah, I've met like a few people and – like I'm friends with them, but no like super close friends. I've joined a netball team, so I have friends at netball. But yeah. Okay, so you're putting yourself out there. I guess that's the most important thing that I'm hearing in this is I haven't quite got there yet, but I'm I'm not going to stop trying. And I love hmm. the whole, you know, group that you can meet together or your friendship application. I think that's really cute. Um, <laughs> but the, there are ways and, you know, technology gives us – lots of avenues to utilize for that kind of thing but I guess at the end of the day it's the it's the vulnerability you have to be prepared to stick your hand up and go which is really brave saying it you know I'm at the age I'm at and I don't have my super close kind of unit yet but I'm out there still looking for it Mm. and I'm hopeful yeah which is a you know it's a fabulous story in itself so when did you start to feel more like you again in terms of the depression probably when I was like 16 once I you know, I was, I got accepted into uni to do the course I wanted to do in year 11. I was doing the subjects I wanted to. I found some people that I was friends with at school and it just, yeah, I felt back to myself and I wasn't dealing with a headache. So I was going to school again regularly. By then the hospital visits had reduced because, you know, as you go on, like it'll go from MRIs every month to then three months to six months and then so on. So that was reducing as well. And yeah, I was starting to feel more like myself and also creating my new self because life was so different after treatment. You know, it was basically a brand new life. And by then I'd kind of found my way and different strategies to deal with all the problems I had. And yeah. Tell me about some of those strategies. When you say the problems that you had, is that relating to the 
the fatigue and the mm. and the, okay, so you you found your ways out. So you had coping mechanisms at last. But interesting yeah. that you say it was kind of a new you and a new life. And I imagine it was if mum and dad parted that you know even the family environment felt different. Your mother is obviously superwoman. That's all I can say. She absolutely is. Tell me about mum because I think it would be remiss of you not to talk about her because clearly she's been incredibly supportive and a big part of your story and why you're now doing so brilliantly. I mean, we've all got to have our super person in the corner and yours is mum. Tell us about mum. She is just the most amazing person. It might make me cry. (laughs) I might cry. (laughs) She has always just stood up for me and pushed for everything for me. Like when I was first diagnosed with cancer, the doctors wouldn't listen. I was like having headaches and I was vomiting every single day, even in my sleep. And we kept going back and forth to doctors for a year until it eventually got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, we got sent to a pediatrician and he wouldn't give me a form for like an MRI scan. And we went back a few times to him and he's like, oh, take this migraine medication for two weeks. And if you're not, you know, getting better by then, then you can book an MRI. But he gave us the form to book it. And he's like, yeah, in two weeks, book it. Mum got straight outside and booked it, didn't she? She (laughs) booked it like in the car and we booked it for like, a few days later on a Friday and then we went back to his office and he said, oh, I can't believe it, but, yeah, you've got a brain tumour. He's like, I had no idea. And mum's like, well, if you had to listen to me, because mum kept saying there's something not right, it's not migraines, something's not right, and she just kept pushing and pushing. And she said, like, the day we got the MRI form, she said, I'm not leaving here until I get a form for an MRI. And then that's when he gave it to us. And when I had my first surgery to relieve the pressure in my brain, they said that they were surprised that I was still conscious. They said they were surprised I didn't go into a coma because of how much pressure was in my head. So they had to put a drain in to drain out the fluid in my brain and meanwhile mum's got you've got brothers you were saying earlier yeah I've got two brothers one's older and one's younger and they had to live at my nan and pop's place in Noosa while we were in Brisbane me and my mum so yeah well she was focused on getting you through the treatment mm. and yeah even then when I was in high school when they told me I couldn't do the subject she said no I'm not agreeing to this like this is not okay and she's just always stood up for me and pushed for better and you know even if I didn't have the best doctor in hospital she would you know push for better and yeah try and make my time as enjoyable as it could be. How did she do that? That's pretty beautiful when you're up against it like you were and and she's got to try and remain positive I guess and keep you bouncing along. How did she do that? I have no idea. Like <laughs> she, she is just so amazing. I think she just loves her kids so much, and I think that's really just what it is. Like, there's nothing she yeah. wouldn't do. What's your relationship with mum right now? We're very close, very close. Well, she's she's gotten you through it all, hasn't she? Mm. And she still does. Like, 
you know, she still comes to appointments with me, mainly because I forget what the doctors have said. Uh, sometimes <laughs> so, that might be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So she comes with me still and, you know, still fights for me. She's still your advocate. Yeah. Amazing. So, and we're there for each other now, you know, after we I finished treatment, like she was a single mum raising three kids. Yeah. So she struggled and stuff, but she made it through when she went to university after that as well. Did she? What did she study? I'm curious. Well, she actually copied off me. Oh, did she? Goes, oh, you chose the same thing as your mum because I, ever since I was in hospital, I had the dream of being an occupational therapist. therapist. And I was, you know, telling mum that through high school and that was my goal. And then before I finished high school, she started university doing that because she's like, that's a good idea. I like that too. <laughs> Fantastic. So what's she doing now? She's an occupation. She's therapist. an OT. Yeah, and she was, absolutely loves it. Well, she was she obviously born so for it given that support oh. she's managed to, you know, get you through these incredible times. Where it's you know an obvious question for me to ask, but but where are you in terms of your physical health now? Clearly your mental health is fabulous or you wouldn't be doing what you're mm -hmm. doing, but what about your physical health and and how often do you check and are you in the clear at the moment? Yeah, so I'm in the clear. I go see heaps of different specialists. I still see my oncologist at the children's hospital because he, he won't let go of me, and especially because I'm still I'm not on surprised. the trial. <laughs> oh, okay, you're still on the trial. Yeah, so he monitors that. I have yearly MRIs, and then I go see him after the MRIs, but I see like endocrinologists, ENT doctors, because I have a thyroid condition now. And I see sleep doctors, neurologists, different people like that. So there's appointments throughout the year. Okay. So, you know, you've had this big experience, but actually there is ongoing treatment or check-ins. Mm. I would imagine you'll sustain, have to sustain for the rest of your life to mm. some extent, but that you take it all in your stride is what I'm hearing now. It's just part yeah. of your daily life. That's you got to do what you got to do and, and you're quite accepting of it. Mm, I think I definitely am now and I just had to adapt my life to what I was going through and what I was dealing with. So yeah, I changed my life a lot and I've adapted my life to suit my needs basically. What a beautiful thing to do because there's so much peace in that I would imagine mm. rather than me going, I'm angry and I'm resentful about what I've had to experience and I can't do X, Y or Z. And you can stay in that space, but it's actually not helpful. And I imagine staying ca relatively calm and peaceful is actually really important for your mm. for your physical and mental health. What did it take for you to be able to go, well, I've got these challenges and this is the stuff that sits outside of my control. You know, there is very little I can do about it. So what sits within my control is how I adapt and, and how I do things differently. When did that penny drop? Because that's, that's not something I imagine most teenagers will actually be able to do. I think it was when I started to come out of that depression and realising that don't fight it, you know, adapt your life to suit it and it's never going to go away whether I like it or not. Like I'm always going to have these memory problems and fatigue, but I can adapt my life to make it easier for me. I think that's a beautiful message in sitting right in there, which is stop fighting against it and actually become accepting of what is and then how do I best work with that, mm. which is not easy to do. But, you know, you've obviously carved out a life that, you know, you've done your study, 
you've gotten to where you wanted to be in terms of your goal, you're working with a client base where you have incredible understanding and and probably empathy in a way that very few people could truly have. You've got an amazing mum and you said you're in a relationship as well. Yeah, I've got a partner. We've been together for six years. Oh, my gosh. He's, he's amazing. He's Tell us so... a bit about that. How did he not get mentioned before now? <laughs> <laughs> he's so good. Tell me a little about him because he's been there through, you know, some pretty mm. pretty tough times. Yeah, he's actually in his last semester of uni. When I met him, he wasn't doing much and I was in year 12 and I had just started like the courses in year 12 and he's like, oh, I could never do that. It's way too hard. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he had a real interest in psychology and I'm like, why, why can't you give it a go? And he's like, oh, I didn't do the right courses in high school and I won't be able to do it. And eventually I encouraged him to just give it a go because that is something he really wanted to do. He really liked psychology. So he went to uni and every semester he's like, I'm going to fail this one. And then he passes. And now he's doing, so he changed from doing a psychology degree to a double degree in psychology and counselling. And he's in his last semester coming up. So you've been inspiring for someone else. I always say to him, like, look what you've done. At the start, you said you couldn't do this. And now look at you, you're better than me. Like you've done two degrees. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's stop with the better than me. But look what you've done. You had somebody who you said was not doing very much and here you are inspiring him to go and find his own kind of gig, what works for him. How amazing the two of you. So I'm imagining he's been an incredible support alongside your mum. Yeah. And you're all giving back, all three of you. How interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we're People always go, oh, your dinner conversations must be interesting, psychologist, <laughs> counsellor and occupational therapist. Yeah, but we have to talk in randoms all the time because we're not allowed to talk about our clients. Yeah. Listen, it's it's been so beautiful to hear your story, an amazing one that it is that, that you've kind of gotten to where you've gotten to and you're really young to have gotten there as well. But I think your experience is probably what informs you more than anything. I'm curious to know if you look back at maybe not 11-year-old you because that stuff was very much out of your control, but if kind of 14-year-old you, what would you tell her today? Honestly, not much. Really? I think the experiences I had and figuring out how to get through them has like shaped who I am today. And if I hadn't have gone through those experiences, I would be a completely different person. Who knows what I would have been doing? I might not even be a counsellor. You know, it shaped me as a person and my career path. And it's now like what I'm passionate about. Like I'm so passionate about helping people and supporting people. And I think the only thing I would say to myself is don't be afraid to put yourself first. Like for so long I was used as a free counsellor for so many people but no one was ever there for me and I, I, the only thing I would tell myself is just kind of stick up for yourself more. Yeah, don't be afraid to go out on your own. Know your worth. Mm. Thank you so much. It's a joy. I hope we stay in touch beyond the podcast and maybe you'll join me in years to come and we can talk about what's happened beyond kind of 22. Definitely.
I feel so privileged to have shared it. You must tell mum that there was definitely, (laughs) I had watery eyes. It's hard not to, to hear Mm -hmm. what you've gone through, but you have the most beautiful smile. You've got the most beautiful career path ahead of you because you will be wonderful connecting, connecting with other people who have had struggles. And you know what? You're, you're an inspiration, Maggie. Thank you. You really are. So I hope for other people listening, you know, that they, they will hear that you can go through the toughest of times but mm. come out the other side and there is a wonderful life there. Yeah, there is eventually like at some times like you just don't see the end and you think that's it, like this is not going to go further, like I can't do it anymore. But if you just stick it out, like something will change, something will come up you'll get that opportunity and you can go for it and your life just changes. If you surround yourself with the right people and if something's not working, like if you have the opportunity to change that environment, do that. And, yeah, I just hope like sharing my story with other people, hopefully that can give them hope that, you know, things can change and if you're determined enough, you can do anything you want. I'm going to end there because they are the most perfect words and I have no doubt that your story will help other people. Thanks, Maggie. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take good care. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Rewind. Subscribe for free for future episodes. And if you're interested in sharing your own journey, please contact us at beanstalkconsulting.com.au. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14.